Hello and welcome to the Power in the Key podcast. I'm your host, Neil Winterton, and joining me on the line as, as he does every week, it's Ben Cad. How are you, Caddy? Yeah, we're good day, mates. Um, yeah, been a huge week. I think the minute we hung up the phone last Sunday night, the whole nuts. league basically turned on its head. So um, certainly a fair bit of content to work our way through. Uh, work our way through tonight, which is uh, which is great. There certainly is, mate. As you said, it's uh, it's been a hectic week in the NBA, so a lot to get through before we get to the series that are continuing on or have just completed. We'll, we'll quickly just touch on on the Denver Phoenix series. The last time we spoke, it was Phoenix up three zero. So game four. It was Phoenix pretty comfortably, 125-118. Chris Paul and Devin Booker were outstanding in that closeout game. Nikola Nikola Jokic got ejected a bit controversially for his hit on campaign, but that pretty much put an end to Denver mounting any sort of challenge in that game four. So just from a Denver perspective, Caddy, where where do you think Denver should go from here in the offseason? They're pretty much tied, tied into this roster they've got. Do they just sort of stick with that? Do they look to make a trade? Do they just cross their fingers and hope that Jamal Murray can get back a bit earlier? Um, count on some, you know, some growth from Michael Porter Jr., which you would expect would still be there, given his young age, and obviously, you know, you'd expect uh, Nikola Jokic to keep playing at this level for for a long time yet. So they're in a pretty good position. Do you think they just stick with it, or do you think they try to swing a change and and, and mount a better case next year? Yeah, I mean, it's it. I think we spoke about it the minute Jamal Murray went down, and it was obviously shattering for not only for this year and, and their hopes to progress deep into this this playoff series, but. You know the concern straight away was you know with the timing of it, it essentially writes off all of next season and and with him you know signing that extension and you know with four um, years of really big money still on the books for him they're they're pretty much stuck with that roster I think there's not a hell of a lot of movement they're going to be able to to do to sort of you know make it any significant improvement and I think as you mentioned you know Michael Porter Jr's trajectory will continue to improve you would imagine and um, you know you're hoping to get another similar. You know, year whether it's an MVP year out of Jokic, but certainly another year at a really high, high level. So, look, I think they're going to be able to compete night in, night out during the regular season. But I think, you know, in terms of an upside, you know, that, that it's hard to see them sort of getting anywhere past that sort of lower, lower echelon of the Western Conference. And you know, they've got the two. You know, when you're looking at their their salary cap sheet, it's Will Barton and Jamichael Green, both with player options into next year. You know, they're probably both. Fairly big chances of picking those up. I can't see a huge contract probably getting put in the face of Will Barton. At longer term, he's got a fourteen point six million dollar contract to to opt into next year. He's and not going to get above that, is he? I don't think so, unless he looks for a you know an extra year and you know maybe try and get twenty million over the two years or something like that potentially. Um, Jamichael Green at seven point five, I think he'll opt into that one. You think as well? So. Yeah, outside of that, Millsap, unrestricted free agent, JaVale McGee, uh, which doesn't free up a hell of a lot of space for them, really. So they're only going to be working around the fringes. And yeah, as I said, it's going to be hard, really just hard to replace that productivity that Jamal Murray would give them at that salary. And I think it's really just going to have to, you know, get through next year as best they can. You know, and, you know, while they've got the MVP player in their team, they're going to be competitive. There's no doubt about that. It's just, you know, it's hard to see them making any great inroads, you know, deeper into a playoff run. So, so what what do you think they need to add around the fringes? Obviously, Aaron added Aaron Gordon at the trade deadline. We were we were both pretty bullish on on that um, inclusion. That was obviously when we were expecting Jamal Murray to be part of this roster. And as you said, there's probably a, a chance that he he might not participate too much at all next season. 
you know, he didn't he didn't quite perform to the levels you'd hope in the playoffs. He was good defensively, but when you look at his offensive numbers, particularly in that second round series against Phoenix, he averaged nine points a game, shooting only forty one percent from the field. So you, you would like more out of out of Gordon from an offensive perspective. Yes, he's there to be a good defender, but you need more out, out of him offensively. And we saw how much they did struggle in that guard department. Now Barton did come back late in that series and gave them a good sort of uptick on the offensive end. But do you think they need to add one of those sort of guys that can put some points on the board, just a pure scorer? Is that is that the way you'd go with them? Yeah, I think it's the upgrade in that starting shooting guard position. That backcourt was obviously, you know, incredibly diminished once Mario went down. I mean, the pleasing uh, quote I saw during the week was uh, the GM, Tim Connolly, when he was referring to the ownership group going into the luxury, tap, uh, the luxury tax, he mentioned that they had no financial restraints on them in terms of trying to further develop out a, a championship roster. So hopefully, you know, that, that means they can be you know, at least bullish enough, you know, to go and, you know, try and take a risk to, to, to upgrade the team. It's just what, what play is going to be out there for them. But I definitely think that upgrading, you know, in a shooting guard to, you know, to basically try and uptick what Jamal Murray is not going to be there. You know, they need probably some more depth behind Aaron Gordon in that, in that position as well. And then just more shooters out on the floor. Um, you've seen, you know, how important the shooting is, during the playoffs, and and when you look at this roster, it doesn't scream out, you know, great outside shooting, you know, in that in those wing positions as well. Obviously, they'll end up starting Campazo, Monte Morris isn't, you know, isn't a, a super good three point shooter. He's handy enough. Austin Rivers is hot and cold, so I think they'd like to surround Jokic. I think with some with some more pure three point shooting as well. Yeah, but probably a nice three and D type would be the way to go. Someone that can defend, but as you said, there that they certainly need to surround Jokic with a few few more shooters because we know how good good a passer he is. Arguably the the, the best, well, probably definitely the biggest, uh, the best passing big man in the history of the NBA. So as many shooters they can get around him, and obviously somebody that that can defend as well. So we'll move on now to to the incredible game that we saw today, Caddy, which was Game Seven, Milwaukee versus Brooklyn. Now, what what an incredible series this has turned out to be. We, everybody in the NBA circles was so excited for this series. And after the first two games, it looked like it was going to be an absolute stinker because Brooklyn were just so dominant. And then we saw the Bucks scrape by in Game 3. And then Game 4, the turning point of the series, Kyrie Irving hurts his ankle. Uh, Brooklyn win, uh, sorry, Milwaukee win Game 4. And it looks like they're now the clear favourites to, to win the series and probably even win the, the next two games because... Obviously, with uh, Harden already being out and then Irving being out, so much was going to be left on the shoulders of, of Kevin Durant. Well, we saw Harden actually came come back for Game Five, but he was he was a shell of himself. He he was putting up three pointers in Game Five, and they were all falling really short. But KD was absolutely incredible in Game Five. He played all forty eight minutes, put up a line forty nine points, seventeen rebounds, and ten assists, and went sixteen to twenty three from the field, and just single handedly dragged them across the line in a game they had absolutely no right. To win, given the cattle that they had out there, out there, uh, obviously it diminished Harden and, and not much else going on around KD. J- just on that performance, Caddy, was that one of the most incredible performances that you've ever seen in in such a in such an important game? I think it has to be right up there, and you know we'll talk about today's game as well from KD. But you know he, he was absolutely incredible, as you said. You know Harden was you know really had no right being out there, and and to his credit, I, I mean he gets so much shit thrown at him as well, but. You know, he, he is a bit of an iron man. This is the first year he's had a, a lot of those injuries, particularly the hamstrings. But for him to even get out there, I think shows, you know, a fair bit of strength on his part, considering he knew how limited he was likely going to be. But, yeah, Kevin Durant, absolutely incredible. In this game, that game five, yeah, it's hard to remember a, a more dominant display, you know, almost a single-handed display to, to get a particular team over the line. So, yeah, he was just brilliant. 
today again in game seven, he, he couldn't have done it a hell of a lot more. And you know, it's hard, to, you know, it's quick to forget that this guy was out with a torn Achilles, um, and now he's playing, you know, forty eight minutes in a game today. He's played over fifty. You know, I was almost wincing every time he sort of had to jump or do anything too strenuous because I was just fearing for him that his body was potentially going to shut down again. But yeah, I mean, that game five, 49 points, 17 rebounds, 10 assists was um, just one for the ages. And as you said, the, the most incredible part about it is the fact that he did have that Achilles injury, you know, so so recently. And we've seen that injury just cri- just cripple so many careers uh, right throughout the history of the NBA. And for him to come back and produce one of, one of the greatest games, and it's, it's not sort of getting caught up in the moment to say that, that's one of the greatest games in the history of the NBA to play all 48 minutes and drag your team across the line, as I said, in a game they probably had no right to win, uh, was outstanding. So, you know, that put the pressure right on the Bucks. There was a lot of sort of hand-wringing about the way Budenholzer coached game five. You know, why didn't they go it? Clearly a limited James Harden more on, on the defensive end. I'd, I couldn't couldn't come up with a real excuse for why they didn't. But Tim Walkie's credit, they responded in game six and come away with a pretty comfortable win, 104-89. And then today, Caddy, in what can only be described as a classic game seven, just just an unbelievable game. It was just tight right throughout it. No team could get away to to a big lead at any stage. And, and we just saw some incredible shot making again from from Kevin Durant, who who had another outstanding game. Uh, with the 48 points, the nine rebounds and the six assists, it was the, it was the most points scored in a Game 7 in the history of the NBA. So he just continues to sort of rack up these these accolades and these records right throughout these playoffs. So what, what did you see out of this game, Kate? What did you think was the key reason that Milwaukee were able to get across the line? Well, I think it was just more consistency across, probably across their five guys that they were really relying on. it. In the end, it was just incredible to see how these rosters just shrunk basically down to almost five men on both teams. I mean, uh, you look at Milwaukee, it was just uh, Connaughton that had the 23 minutes off the bench for them. Uh, Brooklyn just got 13 minutes that day out of Jeff Green, which is surprising considering how well he played in Game 5. We didn't mention that. He had the seven three-pointers in that game. But pretty much these rosters went down to five players on each side. And I think in the end, the Milwaukee guys would probably had a, a more even spread across them and got you know, probably more input out of everyone. I mean, Drew Holiday had another really poor game today and made made a reasonably good uh, big shot towards the end, but five of 23 shooting, again, wasn't, wasn't ideal. But it was, for me, um, when I was looking at Brooklyn, you know, Joe Harris just had a shocking playoff series, really. He he wasn't able to get his shot going at all and it just put so much pressure back to KD considering the limitations James Harden clearly had. And, you know, he was zero for eight in game five. He was two for 12 from three uh, today, so yeah, I think in the end, uh, Milwaukee probably had a bit more confidence around, you know, their their five guys. Brook Lopez um, had some big plays as well, and Middleton had, had sort of bounced back from you know his struggles in the previous series as well. So, I think that was the key. Um, KD, there wasn't much more he could do, and you know he's had thirty six field goal attempts today, which has got to be close to some sort of record as well, I would have thought. But yeah, I think Milwaukee, um, yeah, probably just had a greater spread, and and I don't think you know. You know, it could have been all over if um, Kevin Durant had just had you know half a centimetre behind the line. How the close was red, that? That was red. that was Marv Albert, who's about 185 years old and clearly has lost his vision. Called it a three straight away. I thought it was a two, but I didn't. I didn't realise it was that bloody close. Yeah, well, was, I saw something even after the game. Apparently, KD wears uh, size 18 shoes, and where generally he'd only wear a size 17, but he, he must give himself a bit more give. So perhaps if he had the size 17s on in this game, he, they might have gone through to the. Conference finals, because that's how close it was. He was a game of inches, as they say, Caddy. Yeah, and, and, and it was funny because he sort of took PJ Tucker in and, and just probably almost took him too far into the key, and then he just couldn't 
sort of step back far enough to make that shot. But it was an incredible shot as it was and took the game into OT. And then it was just a war of attrition. And, you know, apart from the two free throws, you know, at the death there with 0.3 seconds, it was two to four in overtime. So yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it wasn't pretty to watch. But, um, yeah, all credit to Milwaukee for, you know, hanging in there in Brooklyn and, and you know, weathering the storm that KD was throwing at him. As you said, there was uh, overtime was just horrible offense, and the only two points that Brooklyn scored was that offensive rebound by Bruce Brown on that first possession of the play, and that they they couldn't score after that. So, and uh, Milwaukee only had the two field goals. Full credit to Giannis for for getting you know that back down on KD and that little hook in in the paint there, and then Chris Middleton's little uh, drive and then sort of fade away jump shot that, that he likes to sink. So full full credit to Milwaukee to to be able to close it out. But just, just on that play before that before the KD shot um, that sent it to overtime, what the fuck was that? That they they inbounded the ball to Brooke Lopez in the corner, who didn't even shoot it. He then passed it. He he caught the ball with two seconds to go and then thought that the best option was to pass the ball. Can did it, did what he, the hell was going did, on there? Well I, I just assumed that he even though they'd come out of timeout, mustn't have had an idea of how much was on the shot clock. He, how can you not that, know? How can you not know? I don't know, but he, he, he had a reasonable look, I thought, and he had the the height advantage in the corner there. So he, he certainly had the opportunity to get a shot up, and then he's basically just handed the ball back. And, um, yeah, they got a, a zero out of the possession. But, yeah, I totally crazy uh, scenes, really. And it, it just looked like he had no awareness of, the, the time in the shot clock. It was dumbfounding because one, wh- why would you go to Brook Lopez in the corner? Like that's the easiest place to trap somebody right in the corner. You've got nowhere to go. But as you said, he he had the height advantage. All he had to do was throw up a shot. It hits the rim. The ball can go anywhere. You had Giannis in the key. It at least eats a couple of seconds off the clock. Even if Brooklyn get the rebound, so that that those couple of seconds were really vital because KD obviously hit that shot to go, and there was only one second left on the clock after he hit it. So that was. That was one of the biggest brain malfunctions I've ever seen by a player in such a crucial possession because there's there's no way that it wasn't mentioned in the huddle that there's only two seconds left. On. It couldn't it could not have been mentioned. So it was unbelievable. But before credit to him because he he came but he came up with a massive block in overtime on a drive by Kevin Durant. It looked like he had had a pretty you know clear path to to the rim and and. Uh, Brooke Lopez was able to block that shot, and I think that led to that to that turnaround jumper from Middleton that closed out the game. So he at least uh, he at least sort of amended that uh, that fold of his. But I actually thought he had a decent game apart from that. He was one of the few guys that when they did go to him, it looked sort of it looked like they were going to get a decent look because th- there's times obviously where Milwaukee's offense can sort of uh, grind down a bit too much. We saw Giannis attempt the six threes after attempting zero threes in in game six. So he went back to to sort of falling in love with that three uh, at times, and he banked in that one that he was trying to claim that he called bank. I, I think he was kidding himself on that one. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you said there. They just got they just got more even contributions across the board. PJ Tucker was really good defensively, despite the fact KD had a good game offensively. He battled his ass off and hit the three. Uh, three pointers, which is all you all you're asking from him. Uh, Chris Middleton, although he wasn't super efficient, hit some big baskets. Obviously, that one uh, in overtime, and and he was he was the only one that sort of looked like get, getting a basket late in that game. And Drew Holiday, as you said, was was horrendous, absolutely horrendous through those first three quarters. But I think he had eight points in a stretch in that fourth quarter. So. Um, sort of made a little bit of amends for that, but geez, they, they need more out of uh, Drew Holiday going forward in, in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, j- just from a Brooklyn perspective, it, 
it was really hard for them, wasn't it? Once it was just basically KD, James Harden, j- just on one leg. You mentioned the fact that Joe Harris couldn't get his shot going. Do you think that was a byproduct of him usually playing with at least two stars where all the focus goes on them and he gets a lot of open shots, but now he, he was a lot more contested on these three-pointers that he would usually shoot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the, the beauty of having Joe Harris in this in this team was, you know, the fact that he was surrounded by KD Irving and Harden and he was basically going to be the odd man out getting open looks. Uh, but, you know, once, you know, clearly Irving wasn't playing and then Harden just couldn't make a shot, you know, the the – the defense was obviously more conscious of where Joe Harris was, and yeah, he just couldn't get it going. He had a really good open look in overtime today, as well, and bounced off the back of the ring, and yeah, just didn't make the shots he, he needed to. Yeah, which which was quite disappointing. So they're in an interesting spot now, Brooklyn. I mean, it'd be it's easy to overreact at the end of one of these games, but really, you know, they were bees dick away from you know getting through to the Eastern Conference Finals, and you know they just you know you look back at the season and they just haven't had any continuity. You know, the three stars, Duran, Irving and Harden, barely played together, really, to be fair. You know, KD was just an uh, incredible season coming off that injury. You know, I think James Harden, you know, as we said, has been, you know, such a war horse in terms of, you know, playing night in, night out this year. Just couldn't get it going. So, you know, I think he needs to have a bit of a, a look in the mirror too. And as much as 100%. I you know, credit yep. him for him to get out there and give it a go. But, you know, you'd like to think if he'd come into camp at Houston in better condition at the start of the year, you know, maybe these injuries wouldn't have come cropped up later in the season for him. So he's got to sort of work out where his priorities are. But you know, you'd think at this stage, Brooklyn have just got to run this thing back um, and give it, a, you know, give it another crack next year and hope that these three guys, as you know, we spoke about when they come together, they've all got a bit of weirdness, a bit of you know, some interesting uh, personality flaws probably as well. So you know, whether they're the right three guys, but if they're all on the court playing well, they're, they're going to be a contender again. It's just. You know whether they all turn up and, and you know remain friends and don't try and overreact to what what's gone down just today. Oh, you wouldn't think so. I mean, you, you outlined it there, you know, perfectly that they're missing Kyrie Irving, their third best player. You'd probably label him James Harden, their second best player. Clearly limited, and I totally agree with you. He he's got to have a look at himself. How desperate is James Harden to win a championship? It's it's the one thing missing from his resume. He's got the scoring titles, he's got the MVP, he's got the All Stars, the All NBAs. I think he even won an assist title at one stage. He's ticked every single box that you want to tick. Apart from what every player says is the most important one, and that's a championship. And and the way he came into camp, yes, he started the the year at Houston. But even when he got to Brooklyn, you, you can lose weight during the season. You just got to stop eating crap. Like it's not that <laughs> difficult. You're a full time NBA player. There's no reason you can't drop weight really quickly. And he clearly just doesn't have the dedication to do so. Because even when he was out injured, like he was, how long was he out for? About six weeks or something. Even though you're out injured, you can still get into good condition. So you, the question mark has to be there. How much does he want this championship? It's it's all well and good saying, I want to win the championship, but your, your actions have got to speak louder than your words. So I think it's got to come back to him because, as you said, he'd, be, he'd been an Iron Man. He'd hardly missed a game up until, until this season. And and it's no coincidence, in my opinion, anyway, that this the year that he's had his, his, his injury problems is the year he's came in, I don't know, 15 kilos heavier than he's ever been. So he, he's got to get himself into good nick. So what do they do around the around the fringes? Does Blake Griffin re-sign there? Because I don't think they envisage, envisage Blake Griffin playing 40 minutes for them in a, in a game seven when they got him across. So what do they need to add around these three guys to, to make sure that they're definitely the team to beat next year? Or is it as simple as doesn't really matter? Oh, look, I think we, we, you know, we spoke about the fact if the three players are there, it, it really shouldn't matter. But again, that, all they can do is get around the edges and, and try and see what veterans are prepared to probably 
come in, take take less money and play a role in a, in a support uh, role to these guys because, yeah, the, the salary cap that they're taking up is um, obviously extraordinary and um, certainly doesn't get relieved at all uh, going into the next season. So, yeah, I think they're going to have to, you know, I, I'd look at bringing back Blake, Blake Griffin potentially. I, I, I can't see there's going to be huge money out there for him on a, on a longer-term deal. So whether he just becomes a veteran minimum guy and whether he's, you know, happy to continue to play that role uh, will be interesting. I think the, the 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 one move they've got, obviously, and we spoke about at the trade deadline, was the Spencer Dinwiddie contract. So he's got that player option in there for $12 million. I mean, So he, he can could, contribute to them, obviously, like if he's I was about to say, yeah. he, if, if he's prepared to, to opt into that contract, you know, injury permitting and, and whether what, what other options he could potentially have out there, he, he could definitely help them. There's no doubt about that. It seemed like a luxury, but, you know, as, as we've seen this year, that you know, you're banking on the fact these three guys are going to be fit all the time and it, and it might not be the case. So, yeah, he's certainly a guy they could, could look to come back. I'd suggest he'll probably look for longer-term security if it's out there. But as you said, outside of that, and DeAndre Jordan, everyone else was on the one-year pretty much minimum contracts and they'll just, I assume, just try and fill out the roster again with this the similar guys unless they can somehow get lucky in the draft and, um, you know, snare one from, you know, from, <laughs> you know, from, from deep, really. Yeah, I'd like to see Blake come back. You would hope at this stage of his career he's made enough money. You know, you can never have too much money, but he's made enough money. And and you saw the way he played throughout these playoffs. He's desperate. I thought I thought he was fantastic. He gave him as much as as, as he possibly could. So you'd like to see him get back. And you know, if Dimwitty's uh, healthy, you know that that obviously really helps them. From a Milwaukee perspective, going in, into the Eastern Conference Finals, what where do you see some issues they need to clean up? Is it is it are they really just lacking for depth now? With that that Divincenzo injury, has probably come back to haunt them a little bit because as you mentioned there, they really only played six players today. You know, Bryn Forbes got the five minutes. Bobby Portis is, was out of the rotation for the last few games, so maybe they can play them under different circumstances. But what do you see? Uh, as the biggest issue for them going forward, for me, it's Chris Middleton. Uh, sorry, Drew Holiday not playing up to to his max contract. Is that how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think they'll fatten that uh, rotation out, particularly the start, the first few games of the uh, the conference finals. You, you'd think Bobby Portis will just have to play, you know, give him something, bring forms, as you said, just the five minutes today. So I'd, I'd expect those two to to come back into the rotation and, and at least try and you know help uh, give these other guys a, a, some reasonable. Yeah, reasonable break, but you know, if it look if it's Atlanta that they're playing, Drew Holiday becomes you know obviously super important from the defense point of view anyway. But yeah, his offense yeah, has been really poor, and he needs to get his you know shooting back going again. You know, Middleton, you're probably just looking for better consistency across the the series. I mean, if you get games like what we saw out of PJ Tucker today, you know that's that's going to be useful for uh, for them and Brook Lopez. Well, I think he is what he is at this at this stage. So I think it's really fattening out that depth chart again, trying to get some confidence back into Forbes and Portis because I think they're going to have to rely on them as um, you know whether it's just in these Eastern Conference Finals or, or further if they get into the finals themselves. You know, you just can't go in with five guys. You know, potentially with back to back seven game series still to come. And, and expect to get it done. So they're going to have to, um, yeah, try and you know reinstill some confidence there. And um, yeah, outside of that, this team's been building for a couple of years, and they finally get their shot at it. Really keen to see how Giannis, you know, performs on this even bigger stage. I think he, you know, it's hard to fault what he was bringing to the table in this series. And yeah, I think he, he's got some yeah, still with with some further room to elevate again. Yeah, I thought he's really good today. He's he's 
the biggest knock on him, as we know, has been his, his ability to be able to impact the game offensively late. And I thought he had some big possessions offensively late, and he's obviously a very good defender as well. So, yeah, we obviously don't know who they're going to play in the Eastern Conference Finals, but, yeah, there's no way they can be going in three back-to-back series relying so heavily heavily reliant upon just six guys. They're, they're definitely going to have to, to fatten that rotation out, as you said there. So we'll jump over now into the into the game seven we're going to see tomorrow to, to decide who comes up against Milwaukee, and that's the Atlanta-Philly series. So, you know, we saw an absolutely incredible game five where Philadelphia came from 26 points down uh, during that third quarter to come away with a 109-106 win. It was just – it was unbelievable, wasn't it, Caddy? We saw – Philly respond because they they had lost game four. Embiid really struggled late in that game. I think he was he missed his last eight or ten shots or something like that. And then he came out and had seventeen in that first quarter and went eight from eight from the field. So it's it's really strange what's going on with him at the moment with this knee injury. But he seems he seems to be good one game and poor the next. So you know for Philly's sake, you hope you hopefully he's going to have one of his good ones in game seven. But for for Philly. To, uh, sorry for Atlanta to be able to come down by by twenty six points and win Game Five. That that looked like Philly were going to be in trouble, and there, there had to be some question marks about Philly leading into Game Six, didn't there? Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the biggest blown games of all time. I think their record, you know, I saw something that might have been twenty five and zero. It all, you know, historically when they've been up twenty six points, so it was one totally out of the bag um, that they'll drop that they dropped it, and to, to think they did that at home. Um, was just unfathomable in a sense. So to rebound as they did in Game Six was, um, you know, to their credit. But you know, I think they're going to need to find something out of Ben Simmons here in Game Seven because he's he's now become a shadow of himself and almost an offensive liability. And you know, he really needs to try and find a find something that he can, can be able to contribute at that end because um, they, they they need him. There's no doubt about that. And Atlanta, you know, given them the fright of their lives, really. And, all credit to them, but Philadelphia want to get through this game seven at home. They're going to need Ben Simmons to get a bit more creative offensively, try and get out into the open floor a little bit more, and um, just take some of that pressure away from from Embiid because he's clearly labouring at times. And um, you know, outside of him, it, it, it's sometimes becoming you know a full Seth Curry offense. And um, yeah, I think you can't just have Ben Simmons sort of hiding, whether it's in the paint or out outside, and, and not being able to deliver. Uh, he, he's he's just been. He's just playing the disappearing act, especially late in games. The last three fourth quarters, he's one from three from the field. That's that that is ridiculous. And we we know he's not that he he's got no outside shots whatsoever, and he's scared to go to the free throw line. He's shooting, you know, he was four from fourteen in that game five where they where they had that you know meltdown basically, and he's. I think it's only Ben Wallace who's got a worse free throw percentage for, for a player throughout a playoff run. So he's clearly – it's inside his own head. You can see that when he goes to the free throw line because there's there's no reason he should be that bad from the free throw line. His form's not that horrendous. So it's clearly all mental with him. And as you said there, like if it's not – it was not Joel Embiid. It's been it's been Seth Curry, the the, the one that stepped up, and he was the one uh, early in that third quarter that that hit three early three three pointers that that got him. They went on a fourteen point fourteen point run to start that third quarter, and that was basically what what won them the game. So Curry's been massive. He had the thirty six points in Game Five as well. So yeah, I agree with you. It, it can't be it can't be Joel Embiid. And then if it's not Joel Embiid, it's Seth Curry, and then we're just sort of scratching around the surfaces. You need more from Tobias Harris, who was okay. He had the 24 points, but you'd still, you'd still like to see a little bit more out of him and, and, and obviously much more uh, from, from a Ben Simmons perspective. What about for for Atlanta? I mean, Trey Young's been outstanding this whole series. It, 
There was an injury to Bogdanovich late and he didn't come back on the floor. You know, if he doesn't play in Game 7, it's going to make it really difficult for them, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think they can win if he doesn't play because, yeah, he's certainly so important to them offensively as a knockdown shooter. Um, you know, Trey Young, as you mentioned, has been outstanding. He, he, he's certainly proven so many people wrong that his style of basketball is sustainable in the playoffs. I think he's certainly hold his head up high, which, whichever way this goes tomorrow. Um, but, yeah, I think they're going to need Bogdanovich as a, as a secondary scorer. Yeah, otherwise, you know, there's too much reliance on Kevin Herter or Gallo coming off the bench. So, yeah, look, I, I think if Bogdanovich doesn't come up and play, then I, I think it'll be, re- you know, really difficult for um, Atlanta to get this game. But, you know, I think they've been... Oh, good night, mate. <laughs> oh, sorry, mate. Um, yeah, look, I, th- I think um, Atlanta have, you know, been absolutely tremendous. And this has been quite a strange series. And I think we mentioned it last week after game one. It was just a bizarre sort of turn of events that Embiid wasn't playing than he did and then they lost. And, yeah, I think really if Philadelphia can somehow get out of this series, they'll be um, certainly quite relieved. And, um, you know, and, and, and then in the end, if it's a Philadelphia Philadelphia Milwaukee Eastern Conference Finals, and I think that's one where everyone will be certainly looking forward to and, and, and one that's probably been building for a couple of years. Yeah, I don't think Philly were expecting it to be such a such a difficult series. And I guess I think the biggest positive from a from a Philly perspective is the fact they were able to win game six and, and Embiid didn't have a great game at all. He had the 22 points and 13 rebounds, but he was only nine from 24 from the field and had the eight turnovers. So, yeah, it's it's which way are you leaning in, in game seven? Is it Philly because they've got – got the home court advantage and there's that question mark over Bogdanovich and you you know you're not too sure who can step up behind Trey Young and you know Herder was good in game game six but can he reproduce that Gallinari who's he's got to be one of the slowest blokes going around in the NBA at the moment he, he just sort of moves around like a boat out there but he's he's having to knock some shots down but are you leaning towards Philly tomorrow in game seven yeah I think so I think the home court you know that you work all uh, all season to to put yourself in a position for to take home court advantage, and yeah, I think that 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 should pay off for them in this game. I mean, we looked at Utah the other week, and we were talking about the fact if it did get to seven, then they'd be favoured, and you know they just couldn't quite get to that that game seven. Philly have got that opportunity now, and it's time to you know to really pay off the the years and years and years of hardship they've had to get to this point, and they've finally got a team now capable of you know potentially going all the way, and it'd be you know it'd be almost unfathomable that they couldn't get past Atlanta in this series and, and bow out. and There'd be um, all sorts of things getting said about them after that if that was the case. So I think they'll win, um, and I think they should win comfortably tomorrow. So if you're going to pick an X factor outside you know, the supposed stars from from either team, which X factor guy do you think could have a, have a big impact tomorrow? Well, I think it's Curry for, for the 76ers. He probably has become more than just a, um, you know, a spark plug. He's become so so crucial and critical to everything they're doing at the moment. But, yeah, if he can have another game like he, he did in game six there, if he's shooting six three-pointers or, you know, if, even if he can score anywhere in that 15 to 20 range, it's going to be um, really important to get that offensive offense out of him. Um, so I think he's the guy for Philly. If he can, you know, play another good game, that'll certainly help them. For for Atlanta, I mean, I think, you know, you're looking at probably John Collins, really, to, to step up offensively. He just had the seven points in game six. You know, they're they're going to need more out of him in this next game. So, you know, he's almost become a decoy at the offensive end in a sense. You know, they're just not looking for him and he's not looking for his shot. So, um, you know, there's certainly scope for him to to get more active on the offensive end. So they're the two I'd probably be looking at in this one. I'll dig a bit deeper than you. I'll go with Maxi uh, for Philly. Now, he, he was great in game six. He ended up playing 
more minutes than Ben Simmons. You know, Simmons was in foul trouble, so that obviously certainly contributed to that. But to come off the off the bench as a rookie and put up sixteen points in a in a must win game, that sort of speaks volume to uh, to his confidence levels. He, he he's never seen a shot that he doesn't like. So I I I could see him stepping up in game seven. These rookies who haven't sort of got much to lose yet, they just sort of don't have a conscience sometimes. So I think I could see him stepping up. Uh, for Philly, for the Hawks, I'll go with Lou Williams. I mean, he's a he can be really hit or miss. He was fantastic in Game Five. He was one of the reasons they're they're able to get across the line. And then in then in Game Six, he come tumbling back to to earth with with no points. He was zero from five from the field in eleven minutes. So yeah, he, he's your typical X Factor style player, Lou Williams. So I'll I'll go with those two. We'll now jump over to the West and and what a crazy all these series has just been unbelievable, haven't they, Caddy? And this. This uh this Clippers Jazz series was no exception. So the Clippers went down zero two in the series as they did in the previous series against the Dallas Mavericks. They were able to get the win in Game Three and Game Four, and it looked like they had sort of you know shifted the momentum their way. But then the news came out that late in Game Four that Kawhi Leonard had suffered a pretty significant. They're saying knee injury. It could be an ACL. They've been a bit coy on how long he's actually going to be out. They are saying he's going to miss the first two games of the Western Conference Finals, but they haven't sort of, you know, expanded upon that. So once that injury happened, it looked like the momentum probably shifted back to Utah. But then Paul George stepped up massively in Game 5. He had the 37 points, 16 rebounds, and 5 assists. And given the, you know, the pandemic P nickname and, you know, all the shit that had been thrown at Paul Pierce that he hasn't been able to come up big, it was really good from my perspective anyway because I'd sort of stuck up for Chris uh, for Paul George a couple of times throughout this season. To see Paul George rise to the occasion and be the number one man, go back to his Indiana days and really lead the team to, to that Game 5 victory. How impressed were you, were you with Paul George in Game 5, Caddy? Yeah, credit where it's due. I mean, I, I was probably on – I have been the guy that's, you know – probably hung him out to dry a little bit on previous performances. And, um, yeah, no, he, he, he really took over in that game five where, you know, when the news came out, you just thought, well, this is all over for, for the Clippers. There's not, not a chance that they can, A, win this game, but all, win the series at all. It was just you thought it was the end of the road for them. But, um, yeah, Paul George wasn't having any of it. And, you know, to his absolute credit, he was able to, you know, lead them to a, an unlikely win, really, I think, in game five in Utah. And that sort of set set them up to to be able to clinch the the series at home, albeit still another surprise result. Really, um, I thought maybe you know just that first game without Kawhi, you know, it obviously got Utah off guard. But then to be able to back it up again in Game Six was um, yeah quite surprising, and, and again a real fillip to to all involved with the LA Clippers because it, it was just the most unlikely of series wins in the end. And um, you know they were getting <laughs> getting incredible production again out of guys like Reggie Jackson who. You just couldn't have, if you'd said he would have these sort of playoff performances while he was um, labouring through you know, another horrible season in Detroit at the start of the year, you'd, you'd be laughed out of town. So, you know, to get you know incredible performance out of him, Marcus Morris was the other one, and then, you know, Terrence Mann has been, um, you know, was has been was solid. And then in that last game, just, you know, became what looked like an all-star level player. So incredible series, this one. And that game five with Paul George leading the way, I think will help. You know, whatever happens in the Western Conference Finals, I think he's been able to shake a bit of that tag of any failure that he'd had previously and it'll certainly help um, his longer-term legacy. Yeah, no doubt. And he spoke about how much he struggled in the bubble last year. So yeah, he got sort of hung out to dry. Everyone talks about him, you know, hitting the side of the backboard a couple of times in, in crucial scenarios. But he, he's he's had instances uh, throughout his career, and I'd said this a couple of times when we spoke about him during the season, that he, he was massive in Indiana in some of those playoff games. So it, it's good to see him, you know, come out and, and really uh, – 
pull them across the line in game five. And then, yeah, game six, down by 25 points early early in that third quarter. And they ended up having the, the biggest comeback in, in a series clinching win in the last 25 years of the playoffs. So just unbelievable. They got across the line 131-119. And you mentioned Terrence, Terrence Mann there. Has there ever been a more unlikely playoff hero in the history of the NBA 39 points, 7 from 10 from 3, 25 of those points coming in the second half. And he was just the, he was just the catalyst for them to get back in the game. And, you, you know, you probably you would have named four or five players you would you would have thought, you know, Marcus Morris, Batum, obviously Jackson, Paul George, you know, those guys you would have you would have sort of named before Terrence Mann being the one that they could have had a game like this. But how 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 astounded were you that Terrence Mann was able to do that? Well, it's just impossible to have ever predicted or thought that that was even possible. So, you know, he made hitting three-pointers at the end of that game look like layups. It was just incredible. And to think, you know, a guy taken late in the second round is, was capable of, you know, having that moment in, in that game at home in LA. And the guy's going to be a hero in that city for, for many years to come because it was um, the performance absolutely for the ages. And we'd be talking at that level if it was from any of their players, really, if they'd had a game like that, let alone... Uh, Terence Mann, who was you know buried on the bench for a fair portion of the season and has come in and played you know spot minutes here and there, but uh, yeah to take a, a lead role you know in that game in particular and, and you know all the way through this series he, he's come in and, and done some decent things as well. So yeah, incredible story and um, yeah, just one that you could never have predicted and you know and Utah just would have been you know looking at it just without believing what had, what had taken place really because it was um, yeah you couldn't have done any planning to expect that was going to happen. Not at all. I don't. I don't think they they scouted too hard hard for uh for Terrence Mann to be going off like he did. So that second half from the Clippers, they were fourteen of nineteen from three, which is just mind blowing efficiency from from three. And Reggie Jackson, twenty two points and ten assists in the second half alone. And there there was a stat that I heard throughout the week that Reggie Jackson actually leads the league in points per per possession off isolation plays, and that's ahead of guys like Harden, Curry. Kawhi Leonard and Joel Embiid, guys like that are the are the number are the names just underneath him. So it's not one of those stats that throw up sort of unusual names. It's all the superstars in the NBA that are the, that are the names directly underneath him. So he, he's come up massive for them in this playoff series, and he's basically become you know that that second his star. You know that's obviously a little bit of a stretch, but with Kawhi Leonard out, they're going to need obviously Reggie Jackson to be absolutely massive and and continue to play at this level in the Western Conference Finals. So what about from a Utah perspective, Caddy? Where, where do they go from here? How do you see them improving? They were clearly the best team uh, during the regular season. They obviously had the number one seed. They had the home court advantage right throughout the playoffs, which is what they wanted. They had they had that injury to Mike Conley, who obviously came back uh, yesterday and was nowhere near himself. He was he was one from eight from the field and only had the what did he have? He had the two points. So he was he really, really struggled, and, and my cousin Chris actually sent me the text last night just to let me know, and I told him <laughs> I'd shout him out. He he had as many as uh, turnovers as, as the, entire, the entire Clippers team, so you know clearly they didn't have anywhere near a, a healthy Mike Conley, but you know the, the Clippers were missing Kawhi Leonard, so that can't be much of an excuse from my perspective. So where do you see Utah go from here? How can they how can they improve and make sure that they can make a deeper run in the playoffs next season? Yeah, I think they're going to be looking at this as, you know, potentially the opportunity that got away from them. I mean, they flamed out pretty badly last year in the playoffs. This year, you know, they you know, secured the number one uh, seed and, you know, had everything going for them, particularly at two all and Kawhi Leonard going down. There's, you know, there was, they should have just been able to close that series out, you'd think. Um, 
you know, going forward, obviously Mike Conway's the big one. He's out of contract, becomes an unrestricted free agent. But it doesn't really help that his $34 million comes off the book, but the Donovan Mitchell extension kicks in uh, next year. So he goes from a $5 million player this year, which is hard to believe up to a, he has the first of, you know, a few big years, he'll earn $28 million next year. So from the cap point of view, you know, they're pretty much capped out. There's not a lot they can do. They can bring Cogney back. Obviously, they'll have his bird rights. They can uh, pay him and, and get him to stay. What value Which it is going to have? You'd expect they'd do that, yeah. Well, they just don't have it. You know, a, a hell of a lot left up their sleeve to be able to do outside of that, as we said. So it, most of their players are on longer-term, multi-year contracts. So this is the team that they built, um, you know, to, for the foreseeable future. Once they lock themselves into Gobert and Mitchell, um, you know, Jordan Clarkson, they, they paid as well. Yeah, so... Th- what are you going to pay term. Conley? 70 for three, round about that, you reckon? Well, I think they'd be probably overs for mine. Like, I, I just wonder, you know, at, at that, you know, you're talking over $20 million a year for the next three years for a guy that, you know, clearly had some has had injury problems for the last two or three years. And, and obviously, early in his career, too, he's been a guy that hasn't you know, had a great uh, history of staying on the court. So I think that's probably overs. But, um, but in lieu of being able to do much else, they may have to just fork it out and, and match any potential bids that uh, come his way to make sure he's happy to stay there. And, uh, and that's if he wants to stay you know, stay in that situation, which you'd, you'd think you know, it, it's been a reasonably good one for him. So really, I, I kind of see this team almost locked in again. And, and it's it's one of those ones where you've been building along and to, to have a, a loss like they have, it's it, it, it really hard to inspire yourself to get back off the floor and go again. But they're going to just have to. Um, unfortunately for them, I think this is a team that's going to be locked into that sort of four to eight range going forward. It's hard to see them if they weren't able to make the leap in a year like this where it was wide open for them to do so, really where there's enough improvement for them to to, to take another step forward. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think they need to to look around and try and get one of the – and every team wants, wants these guys, I understand, but one of those three, three and D type players. So Rudy Gobert, you've mentioned it you know, a couple of times during the season how much everything – you know, both both offensively, but certainly defensively, it, it, it revolves around Rudy Gobert. So, and we saw the Clippers in this series; they just went small. They stopped playing Zubac. He didn't play at all in Game Six. He only played five minutes, I think, in, in Game Five. So, th- they were just dragging Gobert, Gobert away from the paint. Now, he he does okay out on the perimeter, but you know, those shot blockers be, don't become that effective when guys are just shooting threes over them. And that meant that their rim protection was. They didn't have any in the paint, so the guys were able to drive at him. And we even saw uh, Reggie Jackson late in the game just driving straight at Rudy Gobert without any fear. So Gobert, because of the way he is offensively, you know, teams can go small against them and not get punished. If you go small against a Joel Embiid or a Nikola Jokic or one of those other dominant centers who who are, who are really good offensively, well, you can't do that because they just get put in the ring on the other end. But because... Gobert doesn't have much of an offensive game. They can't dump the ball down in the post to Gobert and say, punish punish the smaller defender on you. So, you know, the Clippers were able to get away with defending Gobert with Batum and Morris, which, you know, that, that's they need to be able to address that area there. So whether they get one a, a small ball center who can sort of shoot some threes or, or you know, be a bit more crafty in the post or whether they need to get some with their mid-level exception, you know, maybe a... You know, they'd love to have Jay Crowder, who they had on their on their roster a couple of years ago, or like, or you know, a Kelly Oubre Jr., one of those guys, um, to really shore up to shore him up defensively. What do you think about that? Do they need to, you know, maybe get a different sort of style center to to help Gobert, or do you think they need to add one of these, you know, wings that can defend a bit better? Yeah, I think you're, you're making some good points, and they are going to have to get creative uh, to that extent. So I, I think that yeah, that, that three and D defender. 
I mean, it's hard to see, you know, even a guy like Joe Ingles going into next year on the back of potentially an Olympic campaign, being able to give them any more than what he is. And, you know, Royce O'Neill, for what he does do, you know, he's admirable, but, you know, I think there could be a a potentially upgrade if they could find it in that position as well. But, yeah, as you said, behind Gobert, you know, they can get some more support potentially. But, um, yeah, look, they're going to be just working on the fringes. There's no doubt about that um, unless they're prepared to trade, you know, whether it be Bogdanovich or, you know, Royce O'Neill potentially. Yeah, they're probably the, the chips they'd have, or, or, and even Jordan Clarkson. So whether they're prepared to put any of those guys on the table to, to make a move of any significance, um, it's hard to see, you know, obviously Gobert and Mitchell with those contracts, you know, the, the Jazz being prepared to, to put in either of those um, up for trade. Yeah, so they've got a, they've got a really interesting off-season, I think. So, yeah, um, yeah, who knows what they're going to do, whether they're going to try and get one of these three and D type uh, players in. I'll, I'll be interested to see what they do because they, 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 this is as far as they've got for quite a few years. So the pressure's got to be on them to, you know, to be able to advance and at least get to those, those Western conference finals, I think. So what about, what about the Western conference finals? We can now talk about that. So it's a Clippers versus Phoenix. You know, the unfortunate news was after, you know, we'd spoken about Chris Paul, how unlucky he's been throughout the playoffs. He got that shoulder injury early on in the playoffs, and now he's 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 out for the health and safety protocols. He's definitely missing game one. The reports, you know, that are filtering out are saying he's probably more than likely going to be back for game two. But what I can't understand is why are they starting this game game one tomorrow because they they're going to play game two before game one of, of the Eastern Conference Finals even start. Why wouldn't they wait those extra couple of days? to try and line, line those up. I'm a bit confused, and maybe Chris Paul would have been able to get back for that game one. But so what, what, where do you see this series now going forward, Caddy? Is it the fact that, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, Kawhi Leonard's definitely out of the first two games, probably unlikely he gets back at all. Is it as simple as uh, the Clippers going to be able to struggle and you, know, you can't expect Terrence Mann and Reggie Jackson to perform at this level in the, in the Western Conference Finals and, and, and you think Phoenix are the favourite because of that Leonard injury? Well, they have to be. I think, you know, you, you were talking last week about Phoenix probably being almost a prohibitive favourite to, to come out of the West as it was. And now with Leonard out, you know, as admirable as the Clippers were in, you know, the back end of the series against Utah, it's hard to see them being able to come out and sustain sustain that over seven games. But the fact that we've only just mentioned Chris Paul now, you know, 40-odd, 50 minutes into this podcast, just goes to show what a crazy week this has been because it's... Yeah, you know, it should be the lead story any other week. It should be the lead story of the year, really, the fact that you know, he's out of the, you know, potentially with COVID or whatever the, whatever it is through the health and safety, um, the start of you know, the Western Conference Finals is just just unheard of, really. It's um, just a crazy, crazy time. And, yeah, the, the fact that it, it probably almost got buried um, by the end of the week with everything else that was happening. So, you've look, got to wonder, be, you've got to wonder how... How he came, how it came about that he, you know, was in that scenario. What did he do? You know, it's it's. Well, you don't, you don't get a lot of info. Him, well, I watched him after the Kosiak game in the previous series against Denver, and he jumped. In, he did jump into the crowd and was um, getting amongst his family up in the terraces, which I found particularly odd as it was because of everything that's going on. Not to say that's where, you know, he's caught it or whether yeah, that's not. where. Where the, or that's where they, you know, he's got himself into trouble from a protocol standpoint. But I did but find it think, quite odd that they were protecting him. Yeah, sorry. You'd think he, if maybe that was the case, but you'd think he wouldn't be going out and putting himself in these, you know, scenarios. No, I'm not talking about what you just spoke about, but outside of that, like, why would he be going somewhere which would allow this, you know, this scenario to happen, given how important of, of, of the, the situation he's in at the moment? It's, 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 it's a bit confusing. Oh, absolutely, and uh, like it just 
you know, you can't believe it because you think finally Chris Paul's got going into a, a Western Conference Finals where they're just playing incredible basketball. He's playing just unbelievably, and for this to now happen and and put some doubt around his availability moving forward, it, it's un, unfathomable again. And I just think, you know, hopefully he can come back sooner rather than later, and you know we can get as even a matchup as we can. Obviously, with um, Kawhi Leonard not being available, and, and it's hard to see where he will come back if you know if any of those potential um, stories about the ACL are true. So yeah, just a crazy, crazy week. And you know, to, and as you said, to start the series, you would have thought they'd just both start in line because what happens if it's um, you know this Western Conference Final series starts and for whatever reason it becomes a four nil sweep they, they could be finished exactly you know, by, the, yeah. by game two of the eastern conference finals it could go seven so they it's, might have two it's weeks bizarre. and it's not and they already have the the schedule for the finals set out i don't unless they're planning on pulling that forward i just it's just weird to me that they would the first two games of the western conference finals would happen before game one of the east i, I don't see the point of it and and you know give the clippers a couple of days off but where's the harm in that it's it's strange yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's not obviously not going to work in Phoenix's favour, but I think, yeah, home court, they're still going to be going absolutely troppo uh, in Phoenix uh, for game one. And, you know, whether, you know, this Chris Paul not being there is going to shift the, the way they play and they're going to have to come up with something different. But again, I, I did mention it last week that of, of all the teams that have, you know, a bit of extra depth on their roster, I, I think it is uh, the Phoenix Suns that, you know, can, can, you know, they could look to a Langston Galloway for some minutes in this game or each one more. So, there are some options for them um, further down the roster to, to come in and cover. They're not going to get anywhere near the production, obviously, Chris Ball does, but there is, um, you know, at least there's some men that are hopefully ready to step up. Yeah, and campaign has been really good. I don't know. I don't think Chris Paul's actually missed a game this season, so I think it might be the first time that they're going to play without him. So for me, the the, the big key of the series is can DeAndre Ayton punish the Clippers when they go small? So I mentioned that uh, Rudy Gobert wasn't able to do that when they went small and played either Morris or Batum at the five. And so, so the big question is if the Clippers are going to continue to do that, can can DeAndre Ayton punish them? And we've seen he's had a he's had a good playoffs and, and he's certainly a lot more you know, capable offensively than Rudy Gobert is. And you don't want to go away from your whole system and, you know, pound the ball down low and, and give too many shots to Aiton and take take him away from Booker, obviously. But could, could you see Caddy Aiton being able to punish the Clippers if they do go small on him? Um, oh, look, you'd like to think so, but I don't think it's as simple as, you know, if they go small, he's going to have it all his own way. Because we found, obviously, in the series before with Utah where, you know, Rudy Gobert, you know, it, it didn't work out that well for him, you know, even when you had the the significant size advantage in, in the paint. So, look, I think Aiton's uh, probably a better offensive player than Rudy Gobert. He's got some more more tricks that he can go to. So, look, I think we will see a bit more of Zubac in this series. Uh, whether he starts, I, I, I doubt. But, um, yeah, I think you'll you'll get some more looks um, against DeAndre Aiton in, in this series. But, yeah, he's going to be an absolute key now. You know, we talked about offensively him getting more involved, which he has done throughout the playoffs. He's going to have to go... Probably take that to another level again without Paul in his first game, and and Devin Booker as well is going to have to, you know, he, he, he's, he's certainly not without practice. He did it for four or five years on his own in Phoenix. So if he's got to you know shoulder the load in this game one, then I, he's going to be more than capable and ready to do that. So um, I, I think Phoenix, I'd have still as the prohibitive favourite to win this game one for sure, and uh, and, and set them on their way and, and wait for a Chris Paul return. Yeah, I agree. I think they'll win tomorrow. The Clippers are just coming off, you know, obviously a really draining series against the Jazz. They only get the the one day off in between the games. So, for you, which way are you leaning? I'm thinking Phoenix in uh, 
six. I was going to say five, but I'll I'll say six. Which way are you leaning? I'll go a bit more bullish. I'll go them in five. Yeah, I just you know, if I'm assuming Paul's back for game two and Lennon's not back at all, then I think. And as you said, on the back of um, two seven-game series now where they've had to scrap and fight their way back from a 0-2 deficit, I think, you know, maybe it's got to, you know, it's going to pay itself back at some point. So I think Phoenix, what we saw in the previous series, they'd even against the Lakers in the first series, I think they're well-placed here and, and I would have them in five at this stage. So I asked you this question last week and I'll continue to do so. If you're picking somebody from the West, would you be going? Obviously, you're going with, with Phoenix. What what about from the East now? Who would you be settling on? Well, I, I, well, I did Utah and Philly last week. Utah was a route, so that shifts to Phoenix. And then in the East, well, I, I was Philly. Obviously, Milwaukee are, are clearly already one step ahead, but I will stick with Philly to win Game 7 tomorrow and then get their way through Milwaukee and um, into the into the final. So... The Philly Phoenix finals, um, which I'm not sure too many people would have predicted at the start of the year, which it just shows these last two years, Miami getting their way through last year. And, you know, even if it's Phoenix that can get through this year and a Philly, you know, we're getting some unusual results thrown at us. And it's just been an unusual time, obviously, not only in the basketball world, but in, um, in, in the world in its entirety. So there's yeah, some surprise results all the way through. But, um, yeah, Phoenix and Philly, I'll, I'll go with from, from here on in. Yeah, and it is great to see these these teams popping up out of nowhere. That's what you want. You don't want it to be predictable and to be able to say at the start of the season with, with a huge amount of confidence who it's going to be. Everyone, obviously, was predicting Brooklyn to get through. Um, yeah, last week I said Phoenix. I'll, I'll obviously stick with them. And I said I said before that series started, whoever won that series I thought would win the championship. Now, I'm probably wavering on that now, but I'll, I'll still go with Milwaukee uh, to get through in the East. So I'm going to go Milwaukee-Phoenix for the finals, which I think either way, even if it's Philly, I think I think it would be a, a really intriguing matchup. Uh, I don't now, think the uh, NBA exec- executive is going to be entirely thrilled with the Milwaukee-Phoenix no. um, NBA finals. I don't know that that'll be great for ratings. but Not um, too glamour well, markets, not, no. Not, not, not the way it goes, unfortunately. They do market their stars, though, in the NBA. So you're talking Giannis and... Giannis is one of the biggest stars, I suppose, and you know CP three. So, but you're right; they would obviously prefer, you know, a, a Lakers Brooklyn probably would have been their their ideal scenario. So, yeah, but but as I said, I, I think it's great to get some of these other these other teams coming up, and it's not the the same teams year in year year out. Uh, but yeah, so moving on now, as you said, it's just been an absolutely crazy week. Th- this week alone, we've had three coaches who were shown the door. So it was Stan Van Gundy uh, after only one year with the Pelicans. Rick Carlisle, I think, had been there for, well, I don't have it in front of me. I'm going to say about 12-odd years. Um, and Scotty Brooks with, with the Washington Wizards, which I said a couple of weeks ago when we spoke about the Wizards after they got uh, bundled out in the first round that, that you know maybe Scott Brooks might have been under a bit of pressure. Uh, out of those three, Caddy, what was the biggest surprise for you um, out of which coach got the sack? Oh, look, I don't think it was Stan Van Gundy. I don't think that was such a surprise. I think it was more a surprise they hired him in the first place. That was um, you know clearly a mistake from the outset. Uh, Rick Carlisle was probably the surprise for me. I, I probably didn't see that one coming. And, and more surprising has probably been some of the reports just that have fed out uh, since then that there was certainly some disharmony with um, Dallas star Luka Doncic, which... You know, it's hard to get a read on Luca's personality because when he plays, you now he, he is quite—he you know, does play with quite expression. He plays often, you know, with a smile on his face and all these type of things. So it's hard to see him, you know, he, being. He able, complains yeah. a lot to the ref, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, that's probably his, you know, most frustrating thing of, of what he does, and that's where a guy like Chris Paul probably ended up getting, you know, a bad name from that point of view. Just always arguing with the refs all the time. But yeah, so whether Luca's 
had some involvement there in the Rick Carlisle decision and, and their, their path forward. I probably found that surprising just because Dallas has been such a, you know, a stable environment for so long. And obviously also Donnie Nelson, their general manager, was shown the door as well. So there's going to be significant change in Dallas. And yeah, I, I think that was probably more of a surprise that, uh, that Rick Carlisle won't be, won't be there, but I think he'll have uh, plenty of suitors uh, for a head coaching job next year. Oh, no doubt. He's one of the most respected coaches in the NBA. And, yeah, there's obviously quite a bit going on in that Dallas front office. There was that story that came out before before the firing of Rick Carlisle that Bob Valgaris, I think is how you pronounce his last name, but he's come on board as a bit of an advisor to Mark Cuban. He's, I've heard him a couple of times on Bill Simmons' podcast. I think he was a professional gambler before um, he was hired by the Mavericks, and apparently he's having a lot of influence, and Doncic doesn't particularly get along with him. So th- th- there was something going on that wasn't quite right in that Dallas organization. But yeah, I-, I was surprised that you know Carlisle was the one that was you know shown the door because, as I said, he's one of the most respected coaches in the NBA, and he's done a you know I don't think they've got out of that first round since they won that championship you know back when they did beat Miami in the first year of the Big Three. But you know Rick Carlisle's done done I think as good a job as anyone's going to be able to do. So he's He's certainly going to have have some suitors. Uh, as you said, the Van Gundy one, it was more of a surprise that they did uh, hire him. You know, he's got that reputation of, of being, you know, a really hard coach that, you know, given the Pelicans have a, a young roster, that's probably not going to mesh real well. And there was a rumblings out of, out of New Orleans that Zion's family want him out of there. So they probably made that move out of necessity because they don't want – you know Zion to be upset, and and Scotty Brooks, his time would probably come to an end. That they're just, they look like they probably need to regenerate, and maybe it's time they're going to move on from from Bradley Beal finally. So that now means, Caddy, the seven jobs up for grabs. That's how many firings we've had since the completion of the regular season. So it's Boston, Indiana, Orlando, Washington, Portland, New Orleans, and Dallas. If you were if you're a coach, Caddy, put your coach hat on. You've been a you've been a very successful coach down there, MPNFL. <laughs> if you were to coach one of these uh, NBA teams, which which team would you want to go for? Um, I'd probably be looking still at Boston. I know we'll talk about the Kemba Walker trade shortly, but to, to walk into there with two young stars, uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, I think would probably be the most appetising uh, situation. And, and you know, there's some other young players on that roster. There's obviously a, a lot of regeneration they need to do um, around that. But I think to, to walk in with, with the two stars, Tatum and uh, Brown, um, you know, it, with their age and profile and hopefully still to build together, I think would be um, my number one. I think, you know, you look at New Orleans, obviously, you know, Zion Williamson being a star player. Look, the interesting thing with, with this is probably apart from, you know, Orlando in a sense where you look at New Orleans, Dallas, even Portland, Boston, there, there are star players here um, that, they're going to be there to be coached. So well, they, they all in. either made the playoffs, or you know, you could argue would were expected to make the playoffs. So yeah, there's some decent rosters there. Yeah, there are some decent rosters there. So there'll be some you know coaches obviously lining up to to fill these. But I think for now, Boston would be my first choice. And if I was looking at you know probably my, my last choice as an experienced coach, would probably be Orlando Magic. I think that'll be the job that you know the the really desperate. Uh, coaching applicant that, that lands it will look at it. Yep, I finally made it to the NBA, and, and God only knows what sort of roster they're going to be starting with next year. So that'll be the longer, longer term build there. But um, yeah, some interesting jobs there. I mean, I think Portland's potentially one of the more interesting ones with the Lillard situation. You know, being there longer term, and you know they've sort of been middling, you know, in that playoff position for so long, and it's just trying to find where the upside's going to come from for Portland and whether a coach can think they're going to be able to 
you know, make the necessary adjustments to bring further success there. I think that'll be quite an interesting job as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, anytime you can coach a superstar, so there's teams with superstars. You've got Dallas with, obviously, Doncic, Zion at New Orleans, you know, Lillard at Portland. Boston have got, you know, Tatum and Brown, who, who's who's very good. Indiana have got some guys who, who've made all-star teams. So, and obviously Washington do well. So, as you said, these teams, they're not sort of usually when they, these jobs come up for grabs, they're, they're, they're teams that are going to be re- rebuilding for a long period of time. But that's certainly not the case. So, I probably just side with you as well with the Boston, just because they've got that that those two stars and they're both really young and, Although Boston have struggled, they, they did get Kyrie Irving across. They haven't got a lot of free agents across, but n- neither of the other teams as well. And Dallas have been trying to get one for years, you know, in the back half of uh, Dirk's career. They weren't able to do that. Now, maybe that changes now with, with Luca there. New Orleans, there was reports, I think, that their lease runs up in two years maybe and that maybe they're going to relocate. So who knows what's going to go on there. So despite the fact that you've got Zion there, you know, are you going to go to – to a team that's got a bit of, you know, an uncertain future, I guess. So, yeah, it, probably for me it is Boston as well. But I think Indiana, not that they've probably got that championship upside, but when you look at their roster, I think that they've got a decent roster and you wouldn't be scared to, to take on that role either. Do, do you like what Indiana's how Indiana's roster looks? Yeah, I think, you know, Indiana's a, a, a franchise that never really bottoms out. They, they've got a team, again, that you look at right now, they're going to be a, a competitive team going into next year. So... Yeah, no doubt. I think you know if you land at the Indiana job, you, you're going to be, you know, you've got some, some something to work with. Absolutely. So Demontis Sabonis is obviously an all-star level player. You know, you got Malcolm Brogdon, Karis Levert. You're going to get a, a full crack out, hopefully TJ Warren as well. And yeah, I think they're going to be um, competitive absolutely next year. So you know, being in a smaller market, whether that's going to attract some of the the bigger name coaches or not, uh, will be there to be seen. But you know, you're going to go in there. You're probably going to win 40 games in the first year. Um, you know, just by letting the guys you know, go out and do their thing. So there's some, yeah, different situations that are available. I think the Washington ones probably, for me, would be the least, you know, the least appetising one I'd probably like, uh, just with the big contracts with Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal, and unless, you know, you're able to get a commitment longer term from Beal or, you know... Bertans, the Bertans, the uh, Bertans isn't a good contract either, is it? No, not really. So there's, yeah, there's just not... A lot you can do unless you know Bill's going to be open to, to potentially getting a trade. So, yeah, look, the Dallas one's fascinating too. How they how this off season shake, shakes out for them. You now, Luka Doncic is you know, a generational superstar. Um, you know, you're going to be playoff team all the way through while he's there. So, you know, that's that's another reasonable situation. But I think the talk is that the assistant coach there, I think it's Mosley, um, who's yeah, got a relationship yeah. with with Luka Doncic, is, is the front runner to to get that job and. It's just yeah, we, we go back to a conversation we probably had you know right at the point at the start of the season when we talked about you know player empowerment. You know we, we're already talking about coaches potentially getting hired and fired off the back of you know some of their young star players that are dictating you know dictating the organisation around. Yeah, they they just become gun shy, don't they? they? And and understandably so because every team is trying to get that superstar. So Dallas have got one, as you said, they're a generational star in Doncic. You want to try and keep him happy. New Orleans have got one potentially if he can stay healthy in Zion Williamson. So you, you you want to do you got to tread that line, don't you? Of being able to keep them happy, but make sure they're not running the franchise because I think Houston probably you know lean too much into James Harden having a say on everything, and it come back to bite them in the ass at, at the end. So yeah, it's it's a really it's a really fine line to tread, and you know they're they're trying to do this at, at both of those organisations by firing 
both Van Gundy and Carlisle. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what coaches they get in and, and how they build around them. So you mentioned uh, j- just before about the Kemba Walker trade. So Brad Stevens went from coach to, to the GM and, and his first move, his first big move was to to trade Kemba Walker. So that probably gives a fair indication of the opinion he had of Kemba Walker. So they traded Kemba Walker uh, and the number 16 pick in the upcoming draft and a 2025 second round pick to, to OKC. They got back Al Horford, who they obviously had a couple of seasons ago. Uh, Moses Brown, who had a... It's been an intriguing uh, finish to the, to the season, you'll say, and a 2023 second-round pick. So what did you think of that trade, Caddy? It was, it was obviously Boston trying to free up some, some cap space and trying, obviously, they're, they're, they're going to look to add somebody there. And Al Horford, who who had some pretty good years when it, when he was in uh, Boston, that they've brought him back, you know, because they did struggle in that centre position. So, so what did you make of that trade? Yeah, pretty interesting, really. I mean, again, it sort of it was such a – at a time that you're not really thinking of, of deals getting done, so that again, that sort of came out of the. Yeah, out they of the they usually happen after the draft or, or after the draft lottery, even. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, I think look, I think it's pretty good business for the Thunder to to basically get in another first round pick. They're just <laughs> stockpiling these things like they're like they're um you know dry biscuits. Really, they're, there's plenty of them uh, that they have, and most of them are, are, are pretty solid ones as well. But as you said, it's really around. It was really around getting off uh, Kemba Walker's money. They obviously felt that you know he wasn't improving as a player or wasn't going to get it to any level of improvement, and, and whether there was a personality you know clash, uh, whether it's with the organisation or with players, which is quite unusual because Kemba sort of came into the franchise as a guy that was a good locker room guy. He was really I've never highly, seen him not smiling. Yeah, really highly regarded. What you hear around the league and and with teammates. So um, yeah, they've come off you know getting rid of Kyrie Irving because of. All the issues he, he probably bought. So Kemba Walker was seen like a stabilising influence from that point of view. But they were, you know, pretty quick to, to ship him out. You know, Al Horford coming back in, you know, at, on a big contract too was 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 interesting. He, he certainly got plenty of money uh, left to go. He's got fifty three million owing to him over the next two years, and you, you wonder what sort of level he's going to be able to contribute. You know, he basically sat out the second half of the season uh, this year when OKC basically told him to just to stay home. So. Whether he's been that able last to year of his contract, Caddy, sorry to cut you off, the $26.5 million, and that's only half guaranteed, so they could sort of ship him or cut him and pay him out, and they only have to pay half of that. So that, that may come into play in that second year. Yeah, well, th- there you go. So, look, I, I think for, for Boston, they can obviously, you know, just really shape the team around Tatum and Brown and then be able to sort of work out what they need um, to add around them. You know, Evan Fournier is an unrestricted free agent. I'd be surprised if he came back. I think he would look for opportunity elsewhere and then it's whether they've got any confidence you know in some of their younger players they've got a lot of young drafted players you know it's Peyton Pritchard and Romeo Langford and Aaron Neesmith so there's a lot of guys on this roster whether they see you know to potentially one of those guys to, to come in and step up and play a more significant role will, will be there to be seen so Brad Stevens obviously knows the roster inside and out so he'll he'll be making the necessary adjustments as they go but yeah I think for OKC you know, to get a guy like Kemba to come in and play next to SGA and, and you know, add, add that veteran presence there as well, I think is probably a, a good thing that the, the salary cap money that's going to go back their way um, is, is of absolutely no concern to them. They're going to have to continue to probably um, bring in players to fill out the um, fill out the salary cap. So if they can keep adding draft assets as they go, then you know, they'll continue to do that for the foreseeable future. As, while they get ready to contend, so yeah, an, an interesting trade that sort of, as you said, came out of, came out of the blue a little bit. Yeah, so, so the the Kemba Walker 
um, stint in Boston was just just sort of never got off the ground. He was pretty good in his first year. He ended up making the All-Star team, but I think he got injured late in that season. And then, obviously, this year he only played the 43 games. So there's just a huge question mark over his knee going forward. Not, not so much the production, although it did drop off a little bit this year. But you, you saw at stages he was able to produce reasonably well. But it's more it's more his ability to stay on the court. And given the... You know the scenario Boston are in that they need they need somebody that can stay on the court to to surround Tatum and Brown. So it, it wasn't a surprise that they traded Walker. It's just as you said, more so when it's happened. So you mentioned there that you don't think Fournier will re-sign with them. So with this salary cap space that they opened up, what what sort of player do you think they're going to try and target to to put around those two? Well, it, it clearly has to be at the guard position. I, I think that you know they can't just walk away from um, Walker and Fournier and then expect, you know, I don't think, you know, I've had a lot of some of the younger players before, but I, I don't see, you know, star talent really that's going to jump into a guard spot. So I think they're going to have to look at a point guard. Do they take a flyer? You know, we spoke about Kyle Lowry last last week. Is he the guy that could come in and, and give them some service for a year or two while, you know, yep. Tatum and Brown are still, you know, in, in their young young prime? So he's a guy you could look at to, to fill that out. He'd certainly be, I think, an upgrade on what they had with Kemba, but yeah. um, obviously just a short Larry, Larry's going to want some decent money. I think he said something during the week about, you know, loyalty is good, but at the end of the day, he wants to be able to set his family up for, for generations to come. So whether that – they're up, I think they've only opened up about $10 million, so that might not be enough. Now, if they trade Marcus Smart as well to open up even more uh, salary space, then they could bring in Kyle Larry. Would you, would, you, would you do that? Would you sacrifice – Marcus Smart as well to bring in a Kyle Lowry, or do you think that's giving up too much? Well, I think you're then yeah, you're still limiting that guard rotation. You're taking out another guy, particularly a defensive-minded guard, um, as opposed to Lowry, who's probably more offensively gifted. So, yeah, that, that you'd have to have a backup plan in place there to bring in some more defense uh, in the guard spot. But you know, they, I, I think yeah, you said to free up whatever funds are necessary, they're going to have to potentially you know look to to ship one of their players out. Look, Al Horford could be a guy that they continue to, to shop around to. I, I don't know necessarily that you know he's locked into into being there. I think you know he, he might be a chip they can still trade at some point. You know to get off some more money potentially as well. Yeah, well they've got Robert Williams, who they I'm assuming they want to play a lot at centre going forward. So yeah, it will be interesting to to see if they start the season with Horford or what happens there. Do they do they move him before or move him at the trade deadline next year? It's yeah, it's obviously. All a little bit unknown, but obviously uh, some exciting stuff going on. The, the draft lottery is on Tuesday next week as well, so there's going to be a lot of lot of stuff happening. I, you would expect it's not going to be as eventful as last week, but there'll be there'll be plenty more to talk about next week, Caddy. So we'll call it there. Um, again, as I say every week, thank you to everybody who continues to download the podcast. Jump on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to it firstly, so you, so you know every every week when it comes up. But give us a five star rating if you haven't, and also jump on that Facebook page as we post the the episodes there every week. And until next week, we'll speak to you then.